I, I have no idea what's making that noise. It's me, but I mean, like, I have no idea what part of my system could possibly be making this noise. Beyond the normal 17 years that we spend synchronizing microphones and speakers, uh, I had a painter visit my apartment this morning because we have to paint it because uh, we're going to move. And um, I will just tell you that I've now had the privilege of hiring contractors in two countries and it sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a fascinating experience. Like I was, I was hoping for a better experience, but apparently when you use three languages, it doesn't get any better. Really just doesn't. But they have more languages, so it should be easier to say more things. You would think so, right? You know, like, because we discussed the, the, my partner and I, we discussed the painting in detail in English. And then um, the painter shows up and he wants to talk about it in Czech. And we use Polish as an intermediary language. And um, yeah, this, this is not, not a fun experience. I mean, like, they seem like a stand-up outfit. I have faith it'll come through and it'll be all right. But... Woof, hiring contractors, not a pleasant experience in, in any country. At least you won't be badly surprised because you don't even know what you agreed about. No, definitely not. They're, they're, they're not going to, you know, refinish the walls and paint the floors. That will never happen, right? Right, yeah, right, exactly. That wouldn't happen. That would be too bad. That would be horrifying. <laughs> that would be really horrifying. Why is it so shiny in here? And why are these floors white? <laughs> What's up with you, Adam? So I, I think I've upgraded my coffee preparation method. Um, it's made it cheaper. So I use Chemex and the filters for it are quite expensive and also a lot of paper. And I was like, can I get this somehow easier? So I bought the cheapest filter in the grocery store and it doesn't really fit, but I have this special fold I can do and just put it in there and it sort of holds and it actually makes a nice coffee. It's basically the same result and I'm very happy about it. So it tastes the same as the Chemex through the Chemex filter? I think so, as far as I can tell. And if I'm remembering right, you have to fold a Chemex filter too, right? Well, sort of. It's, it, was, it was folded. You just need to somehow open it and just put it in there. But like this one has totally different shape, so you need to tweak the shape slightly. Like it's a rhombus? I don't know what a rhombus is. I don't know, but it's a shape word. Okay, I think it's rhombus, yeah. Okay rhomboidal coffee filters that's such a niche it is no wonder they're cheap nobody uses them they're like do we need the rhombus ones and everybody's like i don't know what's a rhombus <laughs> so this is for like for drip coffee or what type of yeah yeah it's for drip coffee um i like using the paper filters because there's not like it doesn't leave the grounds in the coffee and it just tastes better at least for me i think it's my favorite way to make coffee I think the real reason you're saying all this is because you really want me to buy a Chemex. You know I do. You know what, Patrick? I'll make you a deal. If you get a Chemex and you filter your water through it, I'll get a Chemex and make coffee in it. Uh, okay. i love to figure out what it is. I can't wait until Patrick shows up one day. He's like, dudes, I've been drinking this Chemex water. It is <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Who knows? For the next one, I'll let you know if I do this. <laughs> So what's on your mind, Patrick? So I was actually playing with uh, um, some stuff earlier because these days um, you can do more and more in a web browser um, and there's no actually full-blown virtualization of CPUs and systems in JavaScript, like in your web browser. That sounds terrible. 
yes, it is. But I was actually playing with like Windows 95 and Windows 2000, both in my web browser, and it somehow actually works. This is horrifying. I, I somehow, I saw an app like you could download Windows 95 as, a, as an Electron app and just run that. I, I guess that's the same thing, right? Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. Like it's just JavaScript running a VM. Is it useful in any way or is it just for funsies? I mean, supposedly you can use it for running old software that is no longer maintained, but yeah, no, I don't think it's useful for anything serious. Is it a, is it a proper VM or is it some weird JavaScript thing that they've tuned specifically to 95? Oh, no. Like one of them that I was looking at is a full-blown VM. Like you can mount your own disk image, etc. Does this mean that there's a hypervisor in my browser? If people write it in JavaScript, then yes. So does it run on the phone? I don't know. I didn't try that yet because I think that the energy requirements for that would be stupendous. And Bex, to get back to your question. So technically, yes, there is a virtual machine running because JavaScript usually is sort of a virtual machine and you have a lot of things that you can now do in your browser that are just baffling. I'm just starting it on my phone. <laughs> Let me know if the battery drains within five minutes. I was going to say, uh, thankfully, he's not recording from his phone. We hope. Of course, I'm not. That would be that would be horrible, right? Wait, so, is this new? I mean, because this strikes me as something that the retro gaming crowd would really love, or like the folks who do, you know, like those retro three-bit operating systems or whatever it is they go on about. Oh no! As far as I've seen, like this has been around for a while now. Hmm. So someone did back in 2018 is what I see here, and it's apparently still maintained because the version part says that the last change was four days ago. Well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's kind of just baffling that that is now possible in browsers. I've seen a talk where someone was making the case that. We started with like assembly on hardware and that at some point, literally everything will be just in your browser. And in, in some ways, isn't that the theory behind Chrome OS? Like they didn't pick that name for no reason. Right. But Chrome OS is, I think, primarily targeted at limited user bases, like at people who just need things that are already on the web. But with this sort of stuff, at some point, there's not much that you can't run in a browser. All right, so we wanted to talk about security, right? Yep. So Patrick, you have CIA written here, and it's about security. That's a funny acronym. What was that? Yeah, so CIA is... It. So first of all, in information security, let's clarify that. We intend to focus on information security, as in how do you protect your computers and not... How do you protect your physical door from entry? Because I have no expertise on that. So in information security, we have the triad, which is basically the three core things that for information security, you try to balance. And we always abbreviate it to CIA, which stands for confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Mm -hmm. So... You have confidentiality, which comes down to does your data stay 
confidential from parties who should not be privy to the contents. Okay. So let's say you have an internal document with planning for your new product. You don't want that to leak because then a, a, a competitor might take advantage of that. So that's when you want to make sure that that sort of documents is kept confidential. So this is basically what people think about security, like things leaking or things getting out there, right? This is what they're protecting. Yes. But there's two more parts. Correct. Because like the next part is integrity, because you also want to avoid that a attacker can actually change the document to be incorrect. So if you go back to the planning part or the, the planning document, you don't want people who have no right to it to change the contents to suddenly be a to suddenly say for example this plan has been cancelled or things like that yeah so it's not just about leaking but also about like if we have it secure can we guarantee that no one mangled with it correct and then the last part of the triad which is availability comes down to can you actually still access the data because if we go back to the product plan, um, you can put it on a USB flash drive, put that in a cubic meter of concrete and dump that on the bottom of the ocean. That sounds secure. <laughs> yeah, like you are relatively sure that it will be confidential. You're relatively sure that nobody will change it incorrectly. So it's integer, but it's not available to people in the business which means that it's pretty much useless. So is there there's there one part of this triad that's the most important? Like I'm sitting here and thinking about each of these pieces and the tools that I've seen used to solve them. So that's the thing. You, you can't say that any of them is most important because if you have two out of three, then the last one is still a pretty big problem because if you can protect... like. I gave you the example of if you don't have availability, then yeah, the data might exist, but it's not usable to anyone. I think I have an example. So like two very different things, like for example, my banking stuff, right? Like that's, that's confidential or my personal email, right? That's confidential. So like confidentiality will be very important for me. But for example, what, what if we have election results? Like, that's not confidential. That needs to be integral. Like, you need to be sure no one mangled with it, right? But, like, it's a public information, and both like both need to be secure, but from a very different perspective. Is that a good example? That is indeed an example for integrity and availability. In that specific case, you don't have much in terms of confidentiality requirements. Right. So the one that comes to my mind, um, you all know that I both... Both of you know, I should say, that, that I love to make fun of Bitcoin. Um, but the underlying technology for that is, is blockchain technology, which is like a super valid technology concept. But going back to that mm -hmm. Bitcoin space, I think I hear a lot of arguments based on what you're telling me the, these this confidentiality, integrity, and availability triad means. I hear a lot of arguments that, that the Bitcoin blockchain is that. And, and maybe I should just ask you this, like, I keep hearing that they've de-anonymized the Bitcoin. So if you have Bitcoin, it's likely they can figure out how much you have. The integrity seems pretty clear. 
But the availability, for example, seems to be garbage because in order to know how much Bitcoin's at a given address, I literally have to go get the whole blockchain, which is now like ridiculously big. Yep. Okay, so good. I'm going to start using that to make fun of Bitcoin. <laughs> yep. But it's cool to see like security if you just want to be more secure. Like that doesn't mean anything. Like what's your goal? Like what you want to secure? Like that the information is correct, that the information like is not leaking or that the information um, does it need to be useful. And yeah, these are good things to talk uh, to think about. Yeah. And when you're building a threat model, for example. Yep. And you want to balance the three out because two out of three is not sufficient. But when you're building a threat model, like you're trying to protect those three things. Um, so what's a threat model? Um, a threat model is comes down to you, like that is situation situational dependent. So my personal threat model would be different from either of yours or the threat model of, for example, Red Hat as a company mm. or of any other company, because it comes down to what type of data do you have or do you have access to and what type of attackers do you think that you will get these types of things are very useful to document in as it's called a threat model to figure out where you need to spend most on protecting hmm. because if you go online for example and search how do i protect myself online um there's a lot of different things yeah and they range from have antivirus installed on your computer to encrypt all your data and store your keys on a physical token and that level. While all of those will improve your security, not everything is required for everyone because there's different types of targets or different types of actors that are aiming for you. Right. So that goes back to having a plan to increase security in general is just not, not really actionable because you need to have specific things that you want to protect from different threats, right? Yes. So, so before you walk through like what I should think about at my threat model, there's a more core question like, is this a plan that I also have to keep confidential and maintain its integrity and availability on like or can i put this on my blog meta security most of it like for most people i would say you can definitely just publish it on your blog for some specific cases you might not want to publicly make available that you have access to certain things but then you're also coming into the case of if your threat model includes nation state attackers the chance that they will find a way to figure out what data you have is pretty large and by nation state attackers you mean like actual countries going against you yes <laughs> those are usually groups of attacker or like groups of people who are being paid by a country to go after someone or a target i feel like most of us don't need to worry about that <laughs> 
Yeah, I was to say, I have a fairly immature threat model. It's basically keep Patrick out of my stuff and keep him from lecturing me about how I manage my stuff. So, <laughs> so you don't feel bad. <laughs> like, what are the actual act? What are the actual attackers I should be worried about, other than nation states who I who I don't think care about me? So, there's multiple types of attackers, all the way from like opportunistic, which is basically a for example, when you see phishing emails, a lot of that, well, phishing emails or texts is just a very big net. So they just write an email asking you to, or saying, hey, I'm stuck in country X, please pay me a thousand or 2000 euros uh, so I can get out. Or the typical print that one print from some third world country that wants to give you money but you first need to pay them like a small amount to create an account somewhere oh i've been offered billions and billions of dollars i remember yeah i, I always resisted it they, they, they never sound very legit to me i don't know why <laughs> yeah so a lot of that is just they will send it to as many people as they can like they will just get a list of email addresses from the internet and just send it to everyone in there. And the problem is that sending that is incredibly cheap. And if even just two or three people fall for it, they've made a profit. Right. Although like these days, I don't really see it in my email. I just not at all because the spam filters are actually really good. But I remember like 10 years ago, that was definitely a thing I sometimes saw. Yep. So these days, a lot of it also goes to, for example, text messages. I actually got a text message, I think, a week ago from with a sender name of a national bank in the Netherlands that I happen to not have a contract with at all. Mm. But that basically said, like, your card has expired. Please go to this URL to, and log in to request your new card. I, I still maintain a US phone number that has SMS capability, and the ones that come out on the American number are just fascinating. Like, I'll get a message to 52 people all named Brian, apparently. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> yes. And of course, one of them goes, I didn't ask for this information, which is completely legit, but 51 other Brians had to find this out. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so that is the the sort of low end of the spectrum. And there's generic rules that you can do to protect yourself, right? Like yes. you can say never click on things in emails or just like never submit a password somewhere. And, and even like banks get better. They just like tell you, just don't do these things. Yeah. Then they ask you to do it. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that all still comes back then to... Can you as a human resist the urge to do so? Mm -hmm. And like, while I totally realize that I personally probably wouldn't fall for it. But I mean, if it's very late at night, who knows, I might accidentally click something. Or as I said, they just send it to so many people that even if 99% of it, of the, the recipients don't click on it if one person does they've already made a profit yeah it's just the it, it scales unfortunately this is one of the things that you need to protect yourself by education right there's nothing yes. you could install on your laptop that would prevent you clicking fake links oh 
maybe there's like a spam filter, but yeah, there's a lot of tools that say they do this, um, but I don't know how reliable they are. Often enough, the best advice there is just to don't click on links and then log in there, or don't click on links you don't expect. Mm. But that's the very low end of the spectrum. Then you get to other types of attacks, like for example, the the another type is remote, and then you come down to, for example, denial of service or distributed denial of service, which is less specific or which is less aimed at you as an individual and more uh, to someone running a web service. So it's like you can't log into your email because the email provider is being attacked and they're being overloaded and you can't do anything because yep. it won't even load for you. Correct. But that's not really something for you to do, right? To protect yourself. It's just you need to hope that the provider is strong enough to... Yep. But that would be, for example, in a the threat model of a company or offering those services. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But talking about logging into email, like passwords, just all of us have passwords. And I feel like that's one of the basic things that we need to protect and keep right. And like th- there's a lot of things about passwords. What if we talk about that for a, for a bit? Sure. That feels like the most actionable thing for people to actually do something about. Yeah, because a lot of it is a, if someone can log into your email or other services then they basically have access to everything in there oh especially email like if you click i forgot my password anyway like most services will just send a link to your email that you can use right so yep email is probably the most important thing that you need to keep safe yeah absolutely that's why you want to make sure that email specifically is always uh, uh, safe and your banking data so for passwords, the one major suggestion I would have for everyone is to use a password manager because unfortunately, us humans are very bad at coming up with a password and even worse at remembering them. Hmm. And if you then need to come up with a password for every single website you log into, you as a human are bad at that because if you use the same password on multiple websites, the chance that any individual website at some point gets its database leaked is not big. But if you have an account on 200 websites, which is not a unreasonable number, I feel these days, mm-hmm. then and you would have a 200 times fold the chance that any of those websites leaks their database. It's like that thing that there's a very little chance of one specific thing going wrong. But like the, out of all the things that exist, one of those going wrong, any of those, is quite a big chance. And I guess that's the same with leaking passwords, right? Yep. And then the problem is that if you use the same password everywhere, that would mean that the anyone who gets their hands on the leaked password database can just try to break your password from it. Some websites store your password just plain text. Others use various forms of password storage. But for a lot of them, it's a case of, well, attackers might uh, 
will probably be or may possibly find out your password. And if you use the same password everywhere, even if it is very strong, then they have the password for all of the other websites. Right. I guess if you're an attacker and you see just like a username and a password, you just try it everywhere and see if it works somewhere. Yep. Well, that's that's the theory behind the Have I Been Owned database, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely. Is that he tracks all those leaks and then you can sign up and he'll send you an email and be like, yeah, your stuff got revealed in this particular leak. You should go figure out if that password was reused and you may want to change this one. Yep. However, I would say that depending on that is not a, like, that's good to know, but just using a different password on every website to start with prevents this from being a very big problem, except for on that one individual website. Mm -hmm. Because not every leak of every database makes it to the have I been pawned database. Fair. Yeah. Because it might just be sold on the black market. So back to building threat models and and defenses. One great way to mitigate this risk is to use a password manager, right? That will allow you to just generate and remember passwords for all those services. Yep. And that's definitely like one of the basic things. If if someone wants to like in general improve their security, like password manager, I think that's the first thing I would tell them personally. Yes. I would absolutely agree with that. That is the one of the easiest things you can do because you would need to remember a single password, but then that is used to then encrypt all of the other passwords that you use. Okay. Also, a quick side note here. Um, I know people who use a password that is like a common word and then the name of the website they use because it means a different password for every website, which is true, except until that gets leaked. Like if you get the password for that, it is very easy for an attacker to realize, oh, I got this leak from websitex.com and the password is my name website X. So let's try my name website Y on website Y.com. Yeah, that sounds pretty obvious. Does that seem like that's the opportunistic? Like, I'm going to take the thing that I can, un- that I have a raw password for. I'm not going to actually go read 8,000 passwords to see if I can discover something that looks like a, you know, a formula. No, but that's relatively easy to automate because you can just ask the attacker if you have the password and you know where, which website comes from, you can see, does the name of the website occur in here if yes try replacing that with the name of another website that's the thing you could easily automate okay that's fair i hadn't thought about it that way so it's not about just having a different password for different services but also have a quality passwords right yes okay so back to what beck said before about um making my security plan public or or secret I think I have no problem saying that I'm using a password manager, right? So that would be a good example of me being open about some of my security practices because the fact I'm using a password manager, it doesn't really affect, like people knowing it, it doesn't really affect my security. Right. Because then in order for someone to actually use that, they would still need to find out which one you use, your email address, and then your master password for that, which should be strong. 
yeah, maybe let's talk about this master password concept and for people who, who are not aware. So a password manager basically is a, it's a sort of vault in which you store all of your actual website passwords. Mm. It's like putting or writing up all of your passwords for websites into a book and putting it in a physical safe. Okay. Before someone is able to actually use your passwords, they would need to know the code of the safe. Now, this means that the security of the whole system comes down to the security of the master password or the key of the safe. So for that one, you would want to make sure that it's a strong enough password. What if that one leaks? So if that one leaks, then most password managers with a hosted service do also have the opportunity to demand a two-factor authentication token. Hmm. So use a separate code that you have displayed on a token or your phone or some other mechanism, in which case someone would need both your password and the token you use for two-factor auth. So that's like those codes my bank sends me over SMS. Yes. Unfortunately, SMS is often not a great mechanism to do that because it is it has been proven possible to in various instances to, for example, steal someone's phone number hmm. uh, without them being aware so that the attacker can then get your tokens. However, that is already a higher difficulty uh, for an attack. So it's better than nothing. Like yes. if you have no choice, either SMS or nothing, choose the SMS. Yes. But if you have a choice, what other options are there? So there are apps on your phone. Uh, um, the one that everyone calls out is called Google Authenticator. Hmm. Or there's a bunch of others on the various app stores, even open source ones. So if you're into that, that's also provided. Um, and those basically, when you try to register or try to activate that type of two-factor auth authentication for your online profile, they would show you a QR code, so the square barcode mm -hmm. that you then scan and that shares the secret key over to your phone, after which it displays a six or eight-digit number that you then on next logins will need to enter. And then you basically know, like you know half the password and your phone knows the other half of password. But what's interesting about the phone's password is that it's changed. It's like every time it's different, right? Yes. And the phone and the server both know what the password is at a particular moment. And that's how it works. Yeah, but what if I lose that phone? I'm not saying that this would ever happen, but I know a guy, Arian Bexelbeard, who dropped his phone in the ocean. Yeah. Right. So most websites where you enable two-factor auth, they will also give you a recovery key or a set of recovery keys with the expectation that you would print those out or write them down and store that safely. The thought there being that if since it's not digitized, it is harder for an attacker to get access to, but that would still allow you access back if you lose your phone some other companies don't have that like for example my bank 
doesn't have that and if I lose my token, I will just have to physically go to the bank office and identify myself. So my friend who threw his phone in the ocean by total accident. You mean Arian? Yeah, Arian. Arian, um, he was telling me the story. He was jumping on a boat. It was terrible. But um, he recovered the phone, so he had the SIM card. But he, like, he, was, he was in Thailand. He couldn't go to his bank. So I guess this gets back to your, uh, your trade-off like in the triad about availability, like how available should something be? Yep. Okay. Because in this case, you can make it very available by having the, like you could store it or you could write it on a tattoo on your arm, but then confidentiality is less because someone might see your tattoo. Then you need to probably balance, like, yeah, how important it is for you to access your bank at all times. So maybe if it is, maybe you can put one of the recovery codes in your partner's password manager. That might work fine, right? Yep. So, yeah, actually, that, that's a good point because uh, my partner and I have been talking about trying to get a password manager where we could have a shared database. And I guess this would be a good use of that shared database. Hmm. Yes, although the pr- the problem is if you store your two-factor auth token or the recovery key in your password manager, that means... Oh, that's the problem that, yeah, you need to get there to get there. <laughs> well, not per- like if it's your two-factor auth for your password manager, yes, I can see that that's being useful. Although other password managers have other approaches to that. Like, for example, I'm using, I personally happen to use one password. And if you use their family system, you can point out the group admins or family owners, and they can start a password recovery for someone, for the other people. Hmm. That includes resetting the two factor auth access. So, as long as like, at least one of you has an access to to a device that has the password manager on it. You you always get to your stuff. Yes. Well, either a device or the emergency recovery kit. It ha- it makes you create when you enroll for it. Yeah, which is the thing that you print and put into your safe, right? Yes. Okay, that makes sense. So what I was coming at to as well is there's people who enroll for two-factor auth for websites and then store the two-factor auth uh, uh, seed in their password manager. Oh, that was, yeah. I talked about this to someone and it felt like you're pretending to have a two-factor auth, but you're not really because you're putting the same thing in the same thing. Right. Well, I'll admit that I do that. Okay. And, And my thought process was this, that... If you want to break into that website, you have to have my password and you have to have my two-factor auth. You might get one or both of those through some third-party method, but the only way to get both is to break into my password manager. And if you've broken into my password manager, all I've done if I don't put the two-factor auth in there is make you have to first get my email password in most cases to go catch the email, which is I lost my token. Right. Yeah. That is indeed a, a one of the things is the factors by themselves, so either password or the, the two-factor auth token, an attacker could get via a leaked database or just brute forcing it 
but getting both of them especially when the other part is changing right like yeah. if there's a password leaked um the password remains the same until you change it but you need to know it but even if there's a leak or something you still have the other part that that's changing well the part that the server stores it like the server doesn't store the changing password the server stores the key that is used to generate that that two-factor auth token mm -hmm. so if that database leaks then the attacker has the key to generate it and they can generate every future two-factor token right okay yeah so the fact that it changes doesn't improve the situation if the data leaks but it does mean that it's way harder for an attacker to get access to your account if they just have your if they have either your password or two-factor auth key so as beck said if you want to put both of them in your password manager that is a choice and for some websites i do that too where i'm less conscious or where i'm less worried for high security things i will use a like either a phone app mm. but if a website allows me to i will try to use a physical hardware token because that is significantly harder to steal digitally yeah it's like it's like that thought that um what's more secure is it having a password manager or is it having passwords written on a paper note at home and i think that's an interesting question that actually came from one of from one of my five listeners but we can we can talk about it later um well no i i think it's relevant now because like all right my mothers routinely wrote their passwords on a like nine sheets of paper that were stapled together next to the the desk they did most of their bill paying from the famous book of passwords and then they'd hand edit it in ways you couldn't read and they had multiple copies so they had all of the fun problems you have with like storing them in a file but about two and a half years ago i convinced her to get a password manager that they could share because I was tired of them having like, you know, like they have a Mac, right? And between the two of them, they somehow had seven Apple passwords, but only one worked, but you could never guess which one from the piece of paper was the right Apple password. <laughs> right. Um, so I was like, with a password manager, at least they'll get down to one entry. Um, so, but, you know, ignoring their kind of like unique systems, which is better. For folks like like we always joke about the people who put their password on a sticky note but that feels super secure unless i have physically broken into your home right are you doing that in an office <laughs> yeah so that's why for offices you or any shared space you definitely do not want to do that in your personal home you can absolutely do that the main concerns i'd have with that is first of all the availability part is if you have them written on a piece of paper and the piece of paper stays home and you're just at some somewhere else now and you need to pay a bill, you can't because you don't have access to the data. I think like whoever is having their paper book of passwords, those wouldn't be people who are paying their bills on an iPad in a cafe, right? They'll probably just have a one desktop at home and that's what they use. And that's the only place that they use their thing. Right. Yeah, so the other challenge I see with that mechanism is that 
most people who this is totally unscientific this is just my gut feeling is that the majority of the people who do that generate their own passwords and then it comes back to what i said at some point is that humans are incredibly bad at picking passwords oh it's like joe 27 and passwords like that or, or birthday date and yes or even if you think that your password is incredibly secure, like you gave a password where you replace all the I's with a one and all the O's with a zero, <laughs> all of those things are incredibly easy for a attacker to brute force because those are standard rules in tools that are written to break passwords from a leaked database. Mm. Like the whole replace E's with threes, replace O's with zeros. Yes. <laughs> that is so common. It is literally written into those applications as standard rules to try out. Right. So, so should I be using your pet's names in my passwords? No, because any like set of individual, like if your password is an individual word and some numbers or a string of words that are relatively common together, it is still very likely that either it's not re as random as you think it is, because people are very bad at being random, or that it's the combination of words is common enough to be in the dictionaries that they use for password cracking. That is why one of the approaches for generating a password that is reasonable is a tool called Diceware. Well, you have a software implementation, but you can also do the manual method where you literally have a list of, I think, like a couple thousand words. It's a, just a list of words with dice rolls prefixed. So, what you then do is you grab a die and you roll it five times and you get for example one two five four three and you look up in the list what that word is well those are the passwords like pink horse plant eating pasta or something yes and, and why you're rolling is that like i already made a human mistake i said like eating pasta maybe that's like what human brain does right but like if you roll it just makes sure that, that these are not like the common connections that like a human brain would do. Yes. So and that's why it's more secure. Yep. So with this, mm -hmm. like you would grab five or six pass five or six of those words and then just stick them together with spaces or dashes or something else and use that as your password. Mm -hmm. If you use that and then write them down like and do that for every individual website and write that down on a piece of paper. Yeah, that should be reasonable. Yeah, there's millions and millions of words, right? And if you have like five, then it's just like million by million by million by million. That's just yes. like a lot of lot of combination. And even if hmm. someone knows that you've used diceware for your password, the amount of words in that list is significant enough to make an attack still Hard, especially if you then somewhere in the middle throw in a straight one or other character and then you combine it with your two-factor authentication and 
you're good for most things. Yes. But then like that is a very manual and labor intensive process. And then just using a password manager, I personally find that much simpler. Yeah, because you just click a button and it just generates a random password, saves it. Yep. And remembers it. And what I actually like about password managers, that goes back to phishing. So, you know, like those fake domain names that look like, for example, like mailgoogle.com, but it's like, in fact, like, I don't know, secure-mail-google.com, like entirely different domain, but maybe it looks the same. And you can be confused as a human and just like logging into that, right? What, for example, password managers often do, they also check the domain that you know that that's the right domain and they will say you hey like i'm not filling this in because this is a different domain yep which is a really cool way to have like yet another step towards security yes like they actively help you from getting fished yeah it's interesting I, my password manager is also on my phone and the the anti-phishing stuff is fantastic but what i've noticed is that it makes it very hard to use in-app passwords because inevitably the in-app piece doesn't trigger the right domain name in the lookup and you, you have to work to like convince the password manager you really know what you're doing sometimes. I would sometimes that's for a few applications. Yeah. I noticed that like they have that. But yeah, I've definitely seen that I need to like, yeah, I'm sure password manager. But you know what? At least my brain is turned on, right? At least I, I know, hey, I'm doing this choice explicitly and I've been warned about this rather than every single time paying attention that I need to check the domain character by character. At least like this is just a 1% of situations or whatever. It says like, hey, you want to check this? And I check this and we're good. Yeah. Like that is a case of if you see a warning every once in a while, you might pay notice to it. But if you see it every single time you try to log in, then it isn't going to work well. Windows, I'm going to say Vista, for example, <laughs> really hit that with their user account control, where it asked every single thing that people wanted to do for this wants to use your admin credentials. Are you sure you want to do this? Oh, and they just become complacent and they just like click yes, 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 yes to everything. And at some point, people just get trained to just say yes, continue. Yeah. So, so back to password managers, let's maybe recap. We covered a lot of things and I think that that might be useful for many people. So use a password manager, use strong passwords and use two-factor authentication. Um, was there something else or? No, I think that that summarizes it. Oh, and have a strong master password. Have a strong master password. So you, we talked a lot about passwords. And, you know, we haven't talked about it, I don't think, on our podcast. But I mean, we've talked a lot about, like, secure websites, HTTPS kind of stuff, um, personally. Mm. What about VPNs? I mean, what is it and why do I need one? So I'm going to kick off with the premise that I think that the question should be, why should I not need one? Because it is very much all in the ads uh, for like, you need this. A VPN is basically a connection to a remote computer owned by the VPN provider. And then all of your other internet, tra internet bound traffic will go via that network. So basically, if you connect to a Wi-Fi in a cafe, it won't, your traffic won't be visible to the Wi-Fi in the cafe, but would go through this tunnel to the other provider. Correct. 
what what they usually sell is security. So like if you connect to a Wi-Fi and you use the VPN, the local you know Wi-Fi network won't won't see your traffic. Yes, which sounds interesting, but um, yeah. So the one thing, or it already starts by the with that is you're trading the fact that the cafe you're in can see your internet traffic for the fact that the VPN provider can see your traffic because at some point your traffic goes to the internet and then, yeah, like then the VPN provider can see what you're doing. So my counter argument about against VPNs is always like, isn't everything HTTPS anyway? So isn't yes. and everything encrypted anyway? So why should I care about VPN? Yes, that's absolutely one of the main reasons why I personally think that VPNs are not needed for security reasons at all. Um, other than some, like for companies, but no. For you as a person, it is not needed for security at all. Maybe like 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, like there's still where HTTP websites instead of like HTTPS, right? Oh, absolutely. Or maybe an app would do something in the background. But do you think even like apps these days are pretty good with using HTTPS or SSL? So the fun thing is that, for example, with iOS, apps are pretty much required to use HTTPS for everything. If they don't, they need explicit entitlement or permissions on the system and they won't pass the Apple review. I'm going to guess that Android has something like that. Hmm. But yeah, so as you said, five or 10 years ago, the amount of HTTPS websites was way lower, but that has massively improved because of free certificates, um, much more documentation, and also the fact that browsers and mobile platforms are steering people to use HTTPS. Like for example, Google Chrome used to mark a HTTPS website with a big secure banner. Mm -hmm. They removed that and instead they now have a big red not secure banner on your uh, uh, bar if it's not HTTPS. Oh, so it doesn't say like, oh, this is HTTPS or this is a bonus security, but rather, oh... Like for websites that are not, it's just like flashes red. Hey, like this is not HTTPS. This is a problem. Yes. And that makes it more visible for people and may motivate service providers to actually use HTTPS. Yes. And additionally, um, Google has taken the issue website available over HTTPS as part of the how high will you rank in your Google results. So because companies want to be high in the Google results, or search results, like they will implement HTTPS because otherwise they'll just get bumped down. That's great. I don't even remember last time I saw HTTP website, like that wouldn't be encrypted, especially if I'm putting some credentials into it. Like I, I wouldn't do it Yeah. these days even. If you try it even, Chrome will warn you, like will show you big warnings with like, hey, this website is not secure. Are you sure you want to enter a password here? Yeah. And if you're using such services, I think you're in a bigger trouble and the VPN won't save you anyway. <laughs> yes, because then the VPN provider will see your password that you entered there. So one of the other, one of the parts that pe 
people then also worry about is the leak of which websites you're visiting because HTTPS protects the contents of the website you're visiting and the data you're sending there. Also, they can see like Adam spent two hours on YouTube. They have no idea what I was doing there, but they know it's YouTube because it's the youtube.com domain. Mm-hmm. Correct. So right now there are two ways a network owner, either the cafe or the VPN provider, can find out what websites you're visiting. The primary one is DNS, which is the domain name system. It's used by your computer to translate a the, the website name that you enter, for example, google.com, into the internet protocol address, IP address, uh, like 172.217.168.238 or 283. Mm -hmm. um, because people aren't going to enter that IP address by themselves, they want to enter google.com. DNS has historically been just open, unsecured. However, that has changed as of a couple of years where people now implemented DNS over TLS and also DNS over HTTPS, where to request or to, to perform the DNS lookup, so to get the IP address for google.com, it actually runs a HTTPS connection to your DNS server. So then the network where you are, so the cafe, also cannot see your DNS traffic because that is, again, within HTTPS to your DNS server. And that is now actually built in to some browsers and a lot of operating systems. Like in uh, uh, the Apple ecosystem, uh, it's now part of the operating systems. In at least Firefox, it is also built in to the Firefox browser. So if you're using Firefox these days, you should be basically completely fine. Like they will not see what you're doing and they won't even see your domain names. Yes. So it's built into Firefox right now. The default is off. Oh. Except for Mozilla is running a trial for it in the US. So people based in the United States might have it enabled, but otherwise it is very simple to manually enable it because it's just a single setting. If you go to the settings and then there's just a checkbox for enable DNS over HTTPS and you're done. Yeah, but wasn't there like a big controversy about DNS over HTTPS? So one of the main concerns there is that then the DNS provider you're using sees all of the websites you're visiting. But that is the same, like someone else will see it because if you don't use DNS over HTTPS, it's your network owner. If you do use it, it's the DNS server only. And in the case of the DNS server, so the standard one for Firefox, for example, is Cloudflare, who have publicly stated that they do not keep track of this other than for operational purposes and it's deleted and not tied to you individually or even your IP address. So you need to trust their privacy policy and the fact that they audit, like they actually get that annually audited if I recall correctly. But if you don't trust Cloudflare, you can use one of the other 
DNS over HTTPS providers that there are. So then you're again making a choice of like, if the people in the cafe will see it or if, if a third party will see it. But it's the same with the VPN, right? And we're only talking about the domain name. So like your data, your emails and everything is secure if you're using HTTPS. Yeah. And then you can basically choose like who will see the pages that you're visiting. And there's always someone because DNS is needed for, for the domain names anyway. Well, Cloudflare has been working on fix on alleviating that concern with a system that is called Oblivious DNS over HTTPS, where they they have a mechanism where they where nobody knows who requested which website. So if you use Oblivious DNS over HTTPS, Cloudflare would know that someone requested Google.com, but an entirely different party would know who requested something. So interesting. That vastly minimizes that effect again. But that's something that's more coming for for like general public, right? This is maybe Yes. If if you know what you're doing, you can hack it into your system, but it's not by any means default everywhere. Right. Yeah, no, this was announced last December. Mm. But that's interesting. So yeah, VPNs. Um that might be good for something, but Yes. Uh, the general the general myth that it protects your email from a coffee shop, it, it that's not really a thing unless you're not using HTTPS, which is very rare these days. Yep. I would personally say that there's about two good reasons to use a VPN. Okay. The first of which is for company policy compliance. So your company tells you you need to use a VPN, in which case, yeah, just do it. Don't say someone on the podcast said that I don't have to. Fair enough. Because <laughs> don't get into I mean, trouble with your company policies. I mean, in general, don't do security decisions only based on what someone said on a podcast. Do your own research. <laughs> Talk to an expert. <laughs> and the other good reason for using a VPN is for avoiding regional locks. Like, for example, a website that says we are not available outside of the United States you can use a VPN so that they think you come from the United States and give you access to their website. That is, in my opinion, the only two good reasons for a VPN. By the way, do note that we are not saying that you should use a VPN for avoiding regional limitation restrictions. This is just a pure technical speculation. Yep. So, um... What's your kind of recap, your hit list of advice for folks, Patrick? So I would suggest people to use a password manager with a strong master password. Okay, so um, use a password manager. Uh, I think you've been pretty emphatic that like, unless you have to, don't use a VPN. Yes. And also if a website lets you also do configure two-factor off on it. And then you're a believer in HTTPS for DNS. Yes. And, and what's your position on throwing phones in the ocean? Um, I would strongly advi uh, advise against it. Unless it's someone else who you hate. Yeah, but like it makes it hard for you to access your data, but a attacker that really wants to might still have access. So even for data destruction purposes, it's not a good, a good method. So I shouldn't break in 
to Adam's notes calendar, violating its security, and then change the integrity of it by suggesting that he go to the bottom of a swimming pool to pay his bills. Correct. That is my suggestion to not do that. 